be really helpful uh, to have uh, Daniel chapter 7 in front of you. And uh, here's something I've been uh, thinking about as I've been preparing uh, for this. Uh, Wouldn't it be great to get a a message, a a text or an email every day to tell you what's going to happen the next day? Wouldn't it be great to know the future? Uh, Like imagine... Uh, that the questions you're going to have to sit in a test or an exam, uh, that they were sent to you in a message before you even start revising. Or imagine knowing if the business that you're thinking of starting is going to succeed or tank before you even start it. Imagine knowing what's going to happen on the stock markets or with the lottery numbers next weekend. Or imagine knowing the winner of the Grand National. Not that I'm condoning gambling for one minute, But it'd be great to know the future, wouldn't it? There'd be so many advantages. Because knowing what is coming next helps us to live with complete confidence today. And as we open up Daniel 7 tonight, I think it's clear that God wants us to discover a message about the future that will enable us to get ready for it now. So we can live with that kind of confidence in what he is doing and where history is heading. And it starts by helping us see the reality of how things actually are now, namely that this world is a frightening place. As God gives Daniel a vision that is is absolutely terrifying here in Daniel chapter seven, verse two, Daniel declares, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another do you just love the sea I, I, I love the sea I love paddling I love um, uh, bodyboarding or plain old just hippoing around in it but if you were here last week then you'll know from the story I told about Fiona and myself getting into trouble in the sea <laughs> on the beach that we now call the beach of death The sea can be a really dangerous place. And God is telling us here that the world is actually like an ocean, churning and roaring in a storm. It is tempestuous and um, turbulent. It's chaotic and dangerous. And out of it emerge four vicious, ugly beasts, like mutants from the swamp, culminating in this weird thing in verses 7 and 8, all covered in horns. I mean, what's with that? Who is this guy? Well, horns in the Bible are a symbol of power, which makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think of, think of a rhino, one of the majestic kings of um, uh, uh, the, the jungle. He, he's annoyed with you. <laughs> You're on his patch. Uh, so what's he going to do? He's, he's going to charge at you. But what's he going to charge at you with? Is he going to lead with one of his stumpy little legs? Or is he going to turn around and reverse at you with his backside and sit on you? No! He's going to come at you with his horn. Because that's where the power is. That's why even the majestic lion will rarely mess with a rhino. A horn is a symbol of power. That's why what we've got here, a vicious, ugly beast with great power. That's who these beasts are, coming out of the sea. But who are they? Well, fortunately, Daniel asked that question for us in verse 16, and he gets the answer in the very next verse. 
These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. They're kings. God, God says that the rulers of the world, get this, God says that the rulers of the world are like vicious, powerful, ugly beasts. <laughs> that seems a bit much, doesn't it? <laughs> to say about our kings and prime ministers and whoever. But think about it. Think about what power does to people in this world. Power, it's like a drug, isn't it? People are desperate. They'll do anything to get hold of it. And when they do, what, what, what happens? Well, human power is abused. So often, that's the case. Kings and rulers rise up to take power. And, and when they do, they will act like power-hungry beasts, crushing and stamping on and deceiving and devouring others for their own ends. The first beast... The lion with eagle's wings stands for the Babylonian kingdom that we've seen so much of in this series. How, how do we know that? Well, it's because archaeologists have dug up pictures of lions with wings that show us that that's actually the symbol that the Babylonians used for themselves. Uh, we also know from the book of Jeremiah in the Bible that uh, that's um, how God describes them. In fact, if you go to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, you can see the main gate and the processional entrance to Babylon that they've rebuilt there. You can see what Daniel would have seen. As picture trotting out of the city are these majestic golden lions, as if to say, the Babylonians are coming to get you. Look at the end of verse 4. We're told that this first beast was made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Which means that there must have been at least something honorable and humane about Babylonian society. It wasn't completely beastly. Whereas as we move on to the second beast, the bear in verse 5, well, he, he looks much more so. And the fourth beast, Mr. Ugly or covered in horns, is such a hideous beast that he's barely even an animal anymore. God is presenting us here with a vivid picture of the rise and the fall of different kingdoms from Daniel's time onwards and how their governments and their rulers will vary over time to time and across the world. So some, of the, some like the first beats, they'll be more civilized. Like, for example, a, a wee bit of a history lesson for you. Um, uh, you probably know this, but uh, since the Reformation in the 16th century and the uh, evangelical revival in the 18th century, our society has been relatively more compassionate and caring because our government has been profoundly influenced by Christians injecting biblical truth into public life. And so during that time, slavery was abolished in this country. And those who led that abolition were Christians. And Christians were also hugely significant in changing conditions for uh, those who worked in manual areas. And the poor, not least in, in, in heavily influencing the setting up of the welfare system and the national health service. 
But beasts change. Governments come and they go. And sometimes you get governments that sideline God and therefore sideline Christian influence too, which is much more the recent case of our country, isn't it? And if you're a Christian, I'm sure you will have felt that. You will feel that keenly whenever you've tried to take a stand for what God says in the Bible. Or or maybe you've even just said that you're a Christian in the first place. You'll get pushback. And you wonder whether maybe you should just tone it all down or give it all up. Well, the first half of this vision says, would you really want to be on the side of something so beastly that takes advantage of people? even if it made life easier for you. But it also reminds us that human power is limited. Because what happens to all of these kingdoms? None of them last. Uh, There is always one coming after another, after another. The beasts, there's one and then another and then another and then another. So in verses 7 to 8, you've got this power-hungry and boastful little horn, and he's, he's so powerful, he's on top of the world, and then bang, verse 11, he's gone, just like that. It's so quick, one minute, absolutely unbeatable, so it seems, and then the next, gone forever. Because no human power can last. It's like, um, have you ever played the chocolate game? You know that game where you put a bar of chocolate in the middle? It's a great kid's game. And then, then you, know, you all gather round, round it and um, you have to roll a dice. And whenever someone gets a six, you know, they, they, they then frantically put on a, a hat and a, a scarf and gloves and, and then have to try and eat the bar of chocolate with a knife and fork. I mean, it's seriously stressful, isn't it? And it's the cruelest game ever because just as you're starting to kind of poke at the chocolate with the fork, somebody else rolls a six and shouts, six, and starts grabbing at the, at the scarf so they almost strangle you and, and tug the, the hat off your head so you're pulling out, ripping out your hairs. And then, and then you have to sit whilst, and watch somebody else eat chocolate. I hated that game as a kid. I really did. It's a terrible way to eat chocolate. But that's what power is like in our world. Beasts come and they go. But that should also be a great encouragement to us as Christians. And keep us speaking up for God and standing for him in our culture. Because God may actually use our influence (laughs) to give whoever takes power next more of verse 4. The mind of a man. So that, like in previous years, we are able to take initiatives that protect the vulnerable and, and care for them, provide some compassion into our society. No matter, no matter what small a way we do that, Jesus calls us in Matthew's gospel to be salt and light, to have a preserving effect on the people around us, the culture we live in. Let me just give you a, a really small example of how that might work for you. It's hard to do that on the big level. We need to be involved in that. But, but in a small level, here's one way that it could work for you. I remember uh, being on a stag weekend with my football friends, and uh, they decided as part of the weekend's activities they were going to go to a strip club. And I, you'll be pleased to know, decided I was not going to go to the strip club. 
Um, and I, in fact, I, I kind of ummed and ahed and, and well, you know, prayed and wrestled with it, with the Lord to go, what's the best thing? Should I, should I just leave the hotel and, and, and leave the weekend as a mark of protest? But in, in the end, I decided I was going to stay. And I would walk down with the fellas to the club. But I wouldn't go in. I would go and wait in the pub opposite them and then join them for curry later in the evening. It seemed like such a futile and sad little stand that I was taking at the time. But once we got down to the club, three of the fellas decided not to go in and to come with me into the pub. They each had different reasons for not wanting to go. One was like, my girlfriend would kill me if she found out. Another was, I, I, I hate what my, was very honest, I hate what my lust does to me. Another said it's degrading to women. Too true. But they all said pretty much the same thing alongside that. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> we didn't want to go. But if you hadn't said you weren't going, then we would have felt we had to. I wonder who you might save from peer pressure or potentially worse by taking a stand, no matter how small and ridiculous it seems at the time, as you seek to go God's way and be faithful to him in our world with the people around you. And as you do, please see secondly that God is in total control. He's got this. Uh, Listen to verse 9. As Daniel looks, he sees thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning like fire. So above all the chaos and the churning in the world from the first bit of the vision, Daniel suddenly grabbed a thing from that vision and and launched up into heaven. And he sees a kind of a, a courtroom. And in the midst of the courtroom... On the throne of judgment sits the Ancient of Days. He's ancient. Well, it's God. It's God who's there. And he's ancient not as in in past it. He's ancient as in magnificent. The God who from eternity past has always been there and never changes. The God who put the very foundations of the earth in place. He is not playing the scarf game, rolling the dice and waiting for his turn. No. No. He reigns at all times and in all places forever. To be ancient is a stunning thing. Here is the one who outlives and outlasts them all. What's he doing? He's taking a seat. Verse 9, okay, which may not seem like much of a thing to you, but he's not jumping up and down going, oh, no, what is going on down there? Oh, no, these beasts are running out of control. Angels, angels, do something, help. No, he's not stressing. He's sitting. He's completely calm. He is totally in control. He's sitting on his throne, and he'll never be moved, and he'll never be thrown off, and he will never be challenged because he is God. 
We're also told in verse 9 that he is pure. His, his clothes and his hair, they're, they're daz ultra white, which means he's good. He is unspoiled and untainted by this world, so we can trust him to do what is right and what is just and what is fair, always. He's so unlike us. And he's also unlike the Christians that we see on TV. He's not a whip. <laughs> His throne, hello, it's on fire. And it's got wheels. Do you see? He hasn't just made this world and, and set it in motion and, and kind of step back just to kind of see what happens. Oh, I hope it goes all right. Powerless to control what might happen. No, he is, he is powerful over all things, and he's active in the world at all times and in all places. Let me ask you, is this how you see God? We have, we have far too small a view of God, don't we? I think we sometimes often have made God in our minds like a domesticated little pet, or, or like a genie just waiting in a lamp for us to, us to find it and find him and, and, and rub the lamp and go, oh, please, please help me, God. So that he can say, oh, oh, great, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you found me. I, I hope I can. That's not God. No, he is a God of burning power who if we were to see him as he really is, we would fall flat on our face in front of him, in awe and wonder. Which is why verse 10 says that a thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, as it's not God that should be at our beck and call. It's we that should be at his. We're to listen to his commands, not merely just throw him our demands. God is awesome, pure, wise. He's totally in control. He's not stressed. And that leads us thirdly and finally to see that if we trust in him, we will win. For just as, it, just as we think that everything is settled, something quite weird happens. Do you see? The doors of heaven burst open and Daniel exclaims in verse 13, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, one, like a human being type figure. And he came to this glorious ancient of days. And will he be squashed, squished? How could he withstand? How could he stand in his presence? Well, he can. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this guy who, who God treats like an equal? Not another ruler to temporarily take charge, but who's going to reign forever? Well, many of us know. But remember, Daniel didn't. Imagine what it would be like for him trying to figure out. Read on in the chapter. He, he almost does his nut in. He, he, he feels white as a sheet and he almost faints. But 500 years later, a little baby is born in a place called Bethlehem. And he's given the name Jesus. At age 30, 
he walks forward and introduces himself into the culture by saying, I am the son of man. 83 times he uses that title of himself in the Gospels. And so in Mark 8, verse 31, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And folks, what Jesus predicted there is what Daniel saw in his vision here in Daniel 7. It's a picture of the end of time when Jesus the victorious, having defeated sin and death and the devil, comes riding in on the clouds of heaven to be crowned king of, well, everyone, everywhere, forever. And this vision warns us that judgment is coming. As this will be a day when everyone and everything that has stood against God will be overthrown, like the beast in verse 11. So the ultimate reason not to give up on and lose hope in God is that even though it might be much easier in some ways to do that now, it would mean being judged by him later. So for a Christian, there's so much that we can fear in our culture of being verbally ostracized or uh, attacked, physically or verbally in some parts of the world, or yeah, maybe, maybe by classmates or colleagues, or losing out on something big because we stand as a Christian in a world that stands against being a Christian. But what we don't have to fear is being on the wrong side of the Lord Jesus when he comes back to judge. Whereas those who aren't trusting in the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and aren't siding with him now as Lord do have judgment to fear. And can I just say, if that is you tonight, can I say as gently as I can? Maybe that is why God has brought you along here this evening, so that you can hear this warning and turn to him before it's too late because he wants to forgive you. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, he loves you and he wants you back in a relationship with himself. So you have nothing to fear from him now or ever. Daniel's vision tells us that judgment is coming so that we can get ready for that now. But then it also says that Jesus' kingdom is coming. As for those who stick with Jesus and recognize him as king, here is the reward in verse 27 at the end of the chapter. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to rule in the same way that God rules 
But in some wonderful way, we're going to share in the running of the kingdom of God. It's going to be amazing to be trusted in that by our heavenly Father as we rule as princes and princesses. So here is the ultimate answer to our feelings of frustration and hopelessness in this world now. The answer is to trust that one day beyond this life we'll be in the very situation that we long for now. We will be working for someone whose values and aims are absolutely right and good and for everyone's right and good. So we may currently have a headmistress or a boss or a, a national government that uses and abuses power for their own ends. We may even see that happening in the church, which is unbearable. And it leaves us feeling that things are never going to get better, that changing a Godward direction will never come. But it will when Jesus returns. And when he does, we'll be able to look back and say, it was better to have taken little stands, even losing stands, for what was right in God's sight than to have thrown our lot in with what was wrong and often even beastly. Why don't we pray that God gives us the courage and the vision to do that in the days that he allots us before Jesus comes back. Let's pray now. A moment of silence for us to, to do that. Oh, Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, in it, giving us these visions that pull back the curtain of human history so that we can see what is really going on in and through the leadership of mere mortals. And Father, we pray that this vision would give us what we need to walk faithfully for you and endure in it, even if we suffer now, so that we may be able to have a preserving effect, to be salt and light in a dark and decaying society, and so that we can stay faithful to you to the end and receive that glorious reward of being crowned as rulers in your kingdom alongside Christ and so that we can actually win others over and through the power of your spirit and the glory of the gospel bring them with us when you take us home we pray this 
for our good and your glory. Amen.